0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to DDK Pod, the podcast where three guys who founded an IT company talk IT industry news and topics that interest us. My name is Julian Day, and with me, as always, are my two co hosts, Jatinda Kandola and Will Dalton. How are you doing, guys? Very good. Thank you. You? I'm not bad. Yeah, not too bad. Will? Good. Thanks. Yep, yeah, good. Thank you. All righty, righty. So, news. Jatinda, do you fancy going first this week with your news story?
1: Yep, happy to do that. So my story is about the death of the business card and the fact that business cards are now being moved online in Asia specifically. So this story is about business cards being a big part of that kind of formality of trying to network, especially across certain parts of Asia. It's a specific name for it in Japanese that I'm going to try and say that I'm excited about. Okay. So apologies if this offends anyone. Uh, but it's called the Meishi kokan card swapping activity but <laughs> it's a big thing because <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's it's a big thing in asia particularly in japan because uh, obviously the natural greeting is there in japan is to bow and it having read a person's business card and title it indicates how how deep you go in your bow so it's that important in terms of the the culture and the the kind of philosophy of how they kind of interact with each other from a business perspective but the fact that the current pandemic has limited the use of these physical business cards means that they've had to change their game, so for networking everybody's moving online, so they've started producing business cards online and trying to kind of Socialize them via like QR codes and things like that and a natural kind of instinct to networking via online But it's always been a big part of their kind of networking business culture. So yeah. it's, it's big news in certain parts of Asia uh, There's some statistics around companies like Vistaprint that are multinational their, their sales have plummeted 70% in the last year And they're not going to be likely to recover anytime soon. And your average businessman in probably a a mid-management position in in countries like Japan will be giving out 200 cards a month. So it's a significant part of what they do.
2: I remember as in Singapore, it was a big cultural thing. I think I was taken aside about how you exchange business cards with both hands and that you actually take time to look at it you know like us we sort of get a business mm-hmm. card and sort of throw it on the table and finish your drink yeah, don't you? but but there you take yeah. time you, you you receive it in two hands look at it study it
1: and then acknowledge them with eye contact you know it's a, it's quite a yeah. ceremony
2: in terms of it i exactly. I quite liked
1: it actually one of the things i have done is invented meishi masks which are your business card on, a, on your face mask <laughs> to try and kind of get over that but obviously it's still <laughs> limited interaction isn't it but yeah <laughs>
0: It's nice to see people treating business cards with more respect than they do in this country, where they put them <laughs> in uh, the gents' toilet. Yeah. Uh, it turns out.
1: <laughs> I do so yours. You yeah.
2: yours.
0: Only mine. Yeah. So so uh, so my business card was discovered shoved into a into a poster <laughs> holder thing in a gents' toilet at our client site, which I was very pleased about. So yeah, there's one for for all the listeners out there to uh, enjoy my humiliation. But yeah, so that's that's interesting. So you hand over your business card first read the business card and then you look at each other and wh- whoever has the better business card gets a better bow in their direction No, I, don't think, works. No,
1: I think the bow happens naturally I think but it's, it's the, the next time you meet the person I think ah. by then you will your business card just says where you're is. I used to just get a nod <laughs> yeah.
0: They a saw you coming, clearly <laughs> Business card yeah. made no difference <laughs> It doesn't matter <laughs> Brilliant. Oh, okay, uh, so so they're doing it all a
1: fun. company called Sansans Sans that does virtual cards. So if anybody wants to have a look at creating one, Sansans Sans is the name to maybe Google. We, maybe we should do that. We just printed <laughs> yeah. out a
2: load of business cards, have not we?
0: How, how do you exchange them? Do you just, like the Santan cards, do you just bump your phones together or hold them near each other or something and, and then it pops so up? So that's Did
1: one you? of the ways. If you, if you can still meet people in person, Oh, yes, I see. Yeah, yes, of course. Yes, ask. yes, yes. So it's, so it's, only, it's more thing, over actually. Zoom or
0: something, isn't it? Exactly. It's like a digital yeah, greeting. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, okay, cool. Makes sense. Excellent. Yeah, good story. Will, do you want to give us your news story?
2: Sure. So mine's BBC. It's an article about AI recruitment. One of the companies that it talks about is Pymetrics, whose quote is, we are redefining workplace transformation. God, there you go. Um, it links in, it links <laughs> Them and everyone I, else, I, I, yeah. Yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm going to link it in with another another article uh, from the New Yorker titled Unethical AI. I'm sure Pymetrics won't appreciate me doing that. But anyway, um, it uses AI algorithms and a, a shed load of racist, sexist and ageist data uh, to match, for example, facial movements, tone of voice, uh, in your pitch you know when you mm. submit a, a when you submit a question to 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 the answers you know the type like, what are your last roles what was your greatest success or challenge with some online games and tests so these these algorithms and the supporting that supporting data then go to decide what kind of character intelligence and personality you are and whether you're a good fit for the company so good for high volume interviewing you know retail what, whatever's left of it, fast food, companies, et cetera. So good for that. Yeah, that's the article. And by the way, there's two things of two note things I want to bring up. One, Amazon. You know Amazon, the bastion of, of fair employee rights and working practices. They actually scrapped their own system because it showed bias against female applicants because most people that work in the tech industry are male. So it, it self-taught itself that male was a better candidate for the for the jobs within amazon and uh, there's a quote from a past president of the association for the advancement of ai and i paraphrase pushing back against nonsensical deployed applications such as evaluating interview candidates from their facial features using ai technology so that's the whole thing about unethical ai which is important in this article
0: yeah it's fairly fairly controversial isn't it doing that sort of thing because if you're somebody who's naturally nervy in interviews or something then your facial expressions could be a poor reflection of your actual character so it's quite a difficult mm. thing to try and judge based on when yeah i mean particularly if you were going for quite a sort of high-flying job or something you might be pretty you know pretty nervous or you might even have had a dodgy carry the night before or something or have got have got a <laughs> for example a baby that's <laughs> keeping you up all night um and uh yeah so it seems like of those pretty things poor. apply
2: to you <laughs> <laughs> no,
0: no not today at least two out of three or one out of three i'm not nervous in interviews but yeah you know it, it's it's interesting isn't it how How people are trying to apply these kind of technologies just to absolutely everything at the moment,
2: isn't it? Well, it's terrible.
0: Why are you trying to apply it to that? That doesn't seem like a very good use case. But anyway, yeah, I guess, I guess uh, people do anything to get ahead. My news story this week is NASA and Perseverance. So Perseverance is the latest rover that they've managed to land successfully on Mars. This happened pretty soon before we recorded the podcast uh, just amazing amazing feat of engineering and technology uh, there's quite an interesting it angle in that they did it in quite a different way this time so uh, there's a video which i'm going to put on on twitter and and in the show notes and everything which shows how they actually made this landing happen and it's absolutely it's like something out of a sci-fi movie i still can't believe it's almost like when um spacex land their booster rockets on on a, a ship in the uh, in the ocean that's driven by ai and and in two locations on the um uh, on the soil you just can't believe that what you're seeing is real with these booster rockets hovering and what nasa have done with this rover which is the size of a car and has a nuclear reactor in it or it's nuclear powered at least like a big car as well it's the size of an suv weighs a lot (laughs) so they they landed it on mars by having it come streaking into the atmosphere with a heat shield on it with some little jets on the back that guided it then they dropped out a massive supersonic parachute so that can sustain can survive being deployed whilst traveling faster than sound biggest supersonic parachute they've ever deployed on a spacecraft so it then starts falling down on this while still guiding itself and what they do is pop the heat shield off the bottom of the whole assembly so the big mushroom shaped heat shield thing just falls off and then there's some cameras inside and they've got a new piece of nifty technology which is effectively kind of ai pathfinding and guidance which scans it doesn't scan the it scans the surface against reference images the next step they're going to try with things like the artemis program to land astronauts on the moon is to have a laser mapping the the surface in real time but basically what they they did was give it a photograph and went go and find this bait this landing location based on this photograph so it scanned the ground on the way down and guided itself in and then <laughs> this is the really unbelievable bit to me what it does is it jettisons the bit that's got the parachute on it and plummets out of the sky on a jetpack. so this suv sized robot falls out of the sky on a jetpack. the jetpack fires its rocket so that it's hovering 20 meters above the ground in a stable way lowers this thing the size of a car down on three cables while it's hovering there on its rocket drops it onto the surface oh, of yeah. mars cuts the three tethers and then flies off and crashes a safe distance away from the rover and the rover's just sat there and it worked <laughs> it actually worked like they did this thing for real and the thing that's really incredible about it is they have absolutely no control at any point in the process they call it the seven minutes of terror because the whole process takes seven minutes from start to finish and it has to be fully automated because it takes, I think it's 11 minutes for a, for a message to get between Mars and Earth. So they have no control over any of this process, but it actually it actually worked. So now Perseverance, it's down and it's there to see whether or not there was ever a microbial life on Mars. So they've landed it in a lake bed, which looks like it, it might have been a, a likely site for life, the Jezero crater. The register had quite a good tagline. They said from hero to Jezero, which I thought was quite good. <laughs> Yeah, and it's also got a little helicopter on board as well, which is quite cool. So the first ever aircraft that will fly on another planet, which we've nice. produced, which is strapped to it. Yeah, this this little uh, foldable helicopter that's going to be flying around. Awesome. Yeah, very cool. I eh? can't help yeah.
2: thinking. I can't help thinking it's a Hummer.
0: <laughs> well it, look, it oh, looks well, very maybe like, it's uh, it looks very yeah. like the previous one curiosity and uh yeah so so it's going to do all of that and launch this little helicopter which is called ingenuity that they're going to have that flying around to test whether they can do drone operations on another planet but again you can't control the drone because it takes 11 minutes for the signals to get there so it's got to be an automated drone so, yeah, huge, huge, huge advances in technology for spaceflight and interesting to see a government funded agency making huge strides. Because normally we're talking about SpaceX, aren't we doing something extraordinary? But NASA sort of hit back with this one. Fascinating story. Jatinda, you're going to take us through this week's main topic, I believe. So this is the uh, the death of school and university potentially due to the rise of online learning platforms, things like that.
1: So yeah, given that there's a lot of content available online, so many different organizations and tools that produce and present that content, what we're trying to do is look at the pros and cons of it. Um, And there's an article that will follow up on this on our website that will look at all of those points in a bit more depth and have a lot more statistics and facts that kind of support some of the, the, the thoughts and different kind of uh, arguments to and for. Uh, but what we're trying to do is hopefully just go through some of the, the salient points in today's podcast and back that up with a bit more reading for every all of our viewers later. And so currently there's several reputable options for online learning probably due to our current kind of climate of being impacted by COVID-19. And there's some big names in the game in terms of offering those platforms, such as Facebook, Google, Salesforce, IBM, AWS, Coursera. They offer material to people of all ages and could cover a wide variety of interests and subjects. Now that the schools have set curriculums and have a focus criteria of subjects and skills for the development of students, They have different regulation and different kind of organizations and institutes that regulate their content. And and some of these ones that I've mentioned don't have any at all or have completely different institutes that regulate their content. So it's important to make that distinction. I think there's also an important thing that we need to, to kind of just make clear in terms of there are junior schools, high schools and higher education to, to consider in terms of the schools and university. And that there's obviously some drawbacks in the ability to teach students of younger ages without that physical presence and being able to observe via video conferencing, the amount of body language that you'd normally get when in person, so it's harder to make judgments on whether they're comfortable, whether they're fully engaged a tentative on, and sometimes even present. I think there's been some very funny stories of kids being creative in the news recently about placing stills or backgrounds to make it appear as if they're present in their lectures when actually they're playing PS5 or something in the other room. But yeah, I think that it's clear that the development of younger children is influenced by that human interaction in person. So therefore, that's a key differentiator. However, for older students, you'd hope that there's less of a need for that 360 observation uh, that you'd only get in person as there's a a two-way commitment towards academia. So going into the kind of pros and cons of it all, one of the, the first things we'd try to kind of talk about in terms of pros is improved attendance. So having spoken with a friend who's a teacher, they found that generally there's better attendance from students when learning remotely or in a distributed way compared to in person, particularly because of convenience, because both teachers and students in terms of attendance can be more present even if they're unwell and have to observe private commitments. Uh, A friend of mine mentioned that there's a significant increase in attendance from certain communities, communities, such as the traveler community, uh, because typically they'll find that There's less of a restriction in terms of their location so they can join more classes and it fits more of the culture of a traveler lifestyle, um, partly because the girls tend to drop out of school at a young age, 11 or 12, and start focusing on domestic chores and stuff, whereas if they have access to education um, in a more convenient kind of manner and to their times, they can still be involved. Another thing that we'd like to, to kind of raise with that that comes hand in hand with it is there's a certain level of familiarity with IT that you get from this remote learning because students start to become dependent on using that technology to learn, therefore they get some free training uh, and it's a necessity rather than option, whereas in classroom it's probably going to be limited depending on where you are in the world and What kind of institute you're at. So there's a greater benefit for those of the people that wouldn't have naturally had that privilege. So particularly in poorer parts of the world where devices would have been shared between high numbers of students in classes. And the exposure brings benefits and probably some disbenefits as well from that wider use of technology. Another point is around the reach of education. So... As the teachers and students can join calls from different locations and access tooling to do this, there's an improvement in the ability to support education across the world and achieve some consistency because there's some diversity in the learning. So. Wouldn't you prefer to learn French from a native French speaker if you're a student in China rather than somebody who's local that's trying to to teach you? So that quality potentially is an improvement. And particularly on this point, there's a commitment from the UK government and they've delivered a lot on it already since 2011 to share resources and support the education of young people across the world, spent millions of pounds on it and will continue to do so, particularly over the next five years. And they want to try and reduce some of the shocking statistics um, of there being potentially over 90% of primary age children in low income countries and 75% in lower middle income countries, which is a total of 330 million children across the world who will not learn to read or do basic arithmetic at the end of primary school. So it's, that reach is quite an important thing from a global scale. And despite having said previously in the point that children from a primary age would benefit from in-person teaching, when you look at it from a global perspective and increasing that reach, there is still a greater impact to be had by being able to connect remotely. One of the other things this brings is that it increases the potential for diversity of content because the use of the World Wide Web is potentially an exponential growth of the actual types of tooling and different kind of mechanisms that are used in remote parts of the world that could be tapped into. And also, it allows the use of technology to be varied for children. So typically, in the Western world, children will associate technology with gaming, whereas if we associate it to learning, um, it gives it a different posture in their thought process. Also, the ability for tools and technology to support special education needs and disability is a major benefit, as uh, instead of looking at a blackboard or a whiteboard in a classroom, People with those kind of special needs will be able to increase their learning experience through the use of software and platforms online that can allow them to learn and interact and absorb that information in a more advanced way. Also, the actual kind of institute of education, making them more digital, will allow them to reduce some of the processes that help the organization run, including automating some of their marking Digitising some of the support services that they run such as counselling and private tuition. Improving compliance of their management processes with other institutes globally, locally and also um, independently with Ofsted. The adoption of modern business grade technology instead of the old tired education software from the past allows there to be a different type of attraction of students and staff. It enhances their catchment area for students as well, so making it fairer. So where some people need to buy a house of a certain value in a certain area to be able to kind of get into a catchment area, Hopefully that would go away or make it fairer at least. It could also help with improving the tracking of progress in a person's education and also marking, integrating the teacher's training and the audit processes from the institution as well via technology, combining some of the child protection services such as child healthcare plans and improving each institute's tooling and learning software from an interactive perspective as currently there's a lot of inconsistency, particularly across the UK. So you'll find that dependent on where the Institute is currently based and how much funding or how much prep they had done themselves, there will be inconsistency in terms of how effective they are in terms of being able to support remote learning at the moment. And if we can use technology in a way to try to get that consistency, it will hopefully standardize the decision making for consistency and integration across the country. Modernization of institutes uh, from the use of technology, making them more attractive and hopefully uh, from a higher education perspective, maybe it will make it a more Fairer playing field in terms of recre- reducing university fees, benefiting the students, of course. Uh, it might hinder some academic research because some of these institutes are dependent on certain amount of funds from uh, subscription to, to be able to do their research. But from a student's perspective, you'll find that a lot of students come out of university uh, with great amounts of debt, and then it's um, a real kind of competition in terms of being able to utilize their degrees in an effective way to pay that back. So those are most of the the pros that would be obvious in terms of this discussion. Uh, Some of the the negative points or cons, I guess we talked about attendance being increased uh, for certain communities. But there's also a question mark on whether the actual student is present when not in person because that commitment to get up and attend in person and be in the building uh, adds to the experience and it's harder to to really understand how engaged that student may be when working and logging in remotely. The fact that students lose that learning environment so there's an accessibility to the institute itself all of the resources such as books being able to look at tap work uh, past work and tap into that kind of Institutes' record, history, their visual decoration of academic achievements from the past, uh, the physical aura of the Institute as well. So some of those things are lost. I guess one of the the big things that is currently in the news that is a a major concern because of the current situation is that children or students that live with abusive personnel or adults or members of their family they are suffering from domestic violence and currently we are limited in how we can kind of support certain people and then this would also be something that is an opportunity but reduces the ability currently in terms of how we can track that and how we make those observations but maybe it leads to more creativity and innovation from a technology perspective in being able to monitor and and protect young people. There's potentially some inconsistency in terms of the playing field. Uh, So as students are learning from home, some will have more space and privileges than others in terms of better internet connectivity, better home environment, desks and, and all of that kind of stuff whereas in schools there's some level of being equal I guess everybody comes in and uses the resources within that building but again it may be that the school can provide mi-fi devices or something like that that can kind of make that a bit more of a level playing field. I guess the other thing is intrusion into the home lives of students and that could lead to more bullying specifically because students can see what each other's kind of settings are like at home because they're they're exposed via that video conferencing. It could potentially leave people, uh, students to marginalize others because the state that that room might be in or what kind of perception you get of the person and their social background. There's also probably still going to be some challenges to support those SEND um, special education needs and disability students because there's still going to be a need for certain levels of physical interaction to support that learning, alongside some of the tools that I mentioned. So there's definitely a hybrid for certain types of uh, student, And some subjects might be more challenging than others to be able to talk remotely, such as you lose that ability to do hands-on science experiments, unless your parents or an adult is there and present and has the equipment and be able to, to kind of support the Mm. student through that experience remotely.
0: Even then it's fairly unlikely.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Some of the chemicals they're dealing with are pretty horrible, aren't they? So (laughs) magnesium (laughs) and God knows (laughs) what else in your house.
2: Fascinating, isn't it? I mean, it's massive. It's so, it's so disruptive, isn't it? Mm. I think you touched on a lot of, a lot of stuff there. Mm. I think one, one, one thing I know about teachers that they love and is probably really beneficial for the kids is the teaching bit, where they're actually physically teaching, interacting with the children. Do you know what I mean? And and the kids get a lot from that. Uh, One thing that teachers hate the most (laughs) is the bureaucracy and the admin and the reach and the, you know, aligning to targets defined by the national curriculum and and measuring and all the rest of it that goes with it. And I'm sure technology helps them, can help them a lot in that. What Mm. I think you know, where where technology teaches in place of the teacher. I'm not sure, do you know what I mean? I'm not sure whether, mm. I think there's a lot of disadvantages as well as a lot of advantages. I think kids going to school and interacting with teachers and interacting also with their peers is really important yeah. for the development of a child. And I think if that child, and, and and I appreciate what you're saying is technology maybe becomes more prevalent the older you get. And when you're younger, yeah. you know, you're dealing with a lot of quite sensitive behaviours quite early on mm. in the development of that child that needs nurturing. And, and teaching is a massive input into the development of a child, being physically present yeah. in a school and interacting with kids and, you know, everything that goes with it. Um, and mm. will technology blunt that somewhat? And will you, have, yeah. will you have kids that are growing up that are, you know, lacking certain dimensions? In their personality, in their in yeah. their completeness as a human being, because technology has, if you roll, taken over certain aspects that maybe it shouldn't have taken over.
0: Yeah, I think that's mm. that's a very fair point. I think another thing that I'm Definitely. interested in, which I don't think I've ever seen mentioned anywhere, is, is this going to disincentivize teachers to want to teach? So a lot of, as you say, well, like a lot of the teachers that I know, quite a few of my friends are teachers, mm. and they say, yeah, we hate the bureaucracy, but the actual teaching kids is worth it. Like, it makes it worth it for me. It kind of gets me up in the morning because I just love being a teacher. But the thing is, do you love being a teacher over Zoom? <laughs> is it the same thing? Yeah. Or are it's you going to leave experience. the teaching profession yeah. because you don't get that immediately? Immediate feedback that that great sort of um, loop you know that you get that feedback loop when you're in the room with the children and you can see their little minds buzzing you know and learning and stuff or or bigger minds you know you you can see you know your your teenagers going through their A-levels or whatever it might be whoever you're teaching even if you're a university professor you've still got that same level of, of watching the development and the growth of the people under your stewardship but that's much more difficult if you're not in a personal setting if you're not there with them and you're not seeing that development in quite the same way I wonder how well it translates so i wonder if there will be a an impact on the retention of teachers as a result of of what's going on with this
2: and will i Mm. think you touched on it jk as well in terms of sometimes schools are escape for kids you know they're escaping their home life which can be hard Mm. and actually going to school is is you know a little bit of an oasis for them a little bit of paradise for them where they can escape that now if you're teaching if you're using technology to teach them at home, there's none of that escape. You know, teachers are so much more than teachers, which is why teachers are great, isn't it? They're, yeah. they're teachers, but they're sort of social workers as well, and they're, mm. you know, they're they they're, mm. they're acting as your friends and your peers and. Mentors. You know what I mean? It's it, mentors. It's yeah, they, it, you know, they it's a can real, be... real big role.
0: Certainly, for me, a couple of my teachers—you know—I still remember their remember their names. They they were such a pivotal kind of influence on my life that I still think of them occasionally now and kind of wonder where they are and stuff. You know, a couple of my teachers when I was in my early yeah. teens, in particular, you know, that they were they were just they were like mentors to me. But the the influence that they had on my life has shaped everything I've done ever since. You know, it's it's remarkable mm. how much of an impact they had. Really, um, another thing that you mentioned, J.K., that Definitely. I think uh, is worth picking up on is the the stuff about the soft benefit of t- children being. Uh, exposed to technology. So there's a fascinating uh, project that was done a while ago that I read about in Africa where they gave a bunch of kids in a remote village. I think it was Africa. Apologies if I've got this wrong, but they gave some kids some, some tablets in a remote village in order to try and be able to educate them and made sure there was a stable enough internet connection and, and wanted to trial this as a model to see whether or not effectively Western charities and others could could educate kids remotely in these remote areas where it wasn't practical to have a teacher living. What happened was within about two weeks, these kids who'd never had access to technology had managed to hack these devices so they'd managed to bypass the education software that was on there and just start using them to browse the internet and and installing all sorts of random games and apps and god knows what else and these were people who had never ever Messed with technology before They had no grounding in it But just because of that sheer wow. inquisitiveness And and uh, amazing, you know Adaptation and improvisation That a child's mind can produce And I see it in my toddler as well I mean, he can operate a smartphone He does things on my wife's smartphone When he gets hold of it That neither of us know how to do <laughs> um, Even with it locked He'll change yeah. like the, the background sort of stuff, And he can't read So he doesn't know what any of these men- mm. menus mean He just Funny, does it by experimentation By repetition and experimentation Experimentation and being motivated. It's absolutely yeah. incredible to watch him doing it. So it's kids, kids exposed to technology that early, it becomes baked into their psyche it becomes a part of who they are that ability to use technology to the yeah, point where now now if i take my sister-in-law's kids who are uh in one of them's 13 uh, another's uh, 11 now and the other's nine if you take them to a museum they will run up to every one of the plaques and start trying to zoom on it like they'll do the pinching gestures on on hmm. these sort of pieces of laminated yeah. paper or whatever because they think everything's a touchscreen they just can't understand why you know they'll say why isn't it working it's like well because that's that's not a touchscreen that's just a piece of glass We're Something behind it, but they just, mm. yeah, it becomes a part of who they are, and and in many ways, I suppose that's preparing them for, for the future, you know, for the life that they're all going to face,
2: which is a good thing, right? So you're introduced in that those technology skills, uh, you know, are being introduced to kids on an early, before early language. Course. In some yeah, cases, yeah. yeah in in the case cases, of my kids,
0: yeah. they're being in, introduced yeah. before they've even got language. Really, it's yeah. where
2: technology is replacing the things that potentially it shouldn't be replacing, because that's about social interaction. That's about learning through behaviour. Do you know what I mean? That, that potentially technology doesn't provide. I mean, it's interesting with our with the work that we do, where we a lot of companies outsource all their stuff to public cloud platforms. And there's a term called undifferentiated heavy lifting that was invented by Jeff Bezos, the ex-AWS CEO. I don't think he's CEO anymore, is he? But what that means is you basically get rid of all the stuff that doesn't benefit your business, doesn't add business value. And potentially that's what you apply to the education system, is that all the stuff that doesn't add value for you being a teacher which is the core skill isn't it ultimately it's about developing children Mm. into into um into better products so to speak but to get rid of all that stuff all that undifferentiated heavy lifting and that's potentially where technology can help
0: so fascinating debate but we'll move on if we may to the recommendation section of the show Will, do you want to go first with your recommendation this week?
2: Yeah, sure. So my recommendation is Kate Rayworth, who is the author of Donut Economics, Seven Ways to Think, like a 21st century economist. Yeah, I read about that. Cool. There's a song by a group called Muse. (laughs) The second law, unsustainable. Uh, and it's a lens, really, on the current supply and demand economics model where the cross is in the middle, which is the best price. And that basically drives our economics and has done for the last two centuries in the Western world. It's all about GDP growth. Now, Kate mm-hmm. Rayworth's book is not about traditional growth, 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 but it's more about balance. So it's moving us from a model where we've got a situation where the planks from a tree are worth more than the tree. You know, a a whale dead is worth more than it is alive. Chucking poisons into rivers and seas is a better economical model than disposing of waste responsibly and ecologically.
0: Yeah, throwing lithium batteries in a dump is more economical than recycling them. We've talked about that before, haven't
2: we? Exactly, yeah, yeah. Uh, Which is, you know, what we're on course for with the growth of electric cars. So towards what she's calling a donut model and it's been around a few years and I'll post the the actual model on twitter but but basically growth and companies and products and the economic model as a whole is based on considering the, uh, an inner circle of that donut, which defines social boundaries like housing and energy and health and education and food, and there's a whole lot more. Uh, and that the outer ring of the donut is the planet boundaries: what is sustainable? You know, biodiversity loss, air pollution, climate change, etc. So, so the performance of the economy is measured on this, a much more balanced set of metrics, not just on growth of GDP. So, that's Kate Rayworth, author of Donut Economics: Seven Ways to Think. A
0: 21st century economist. That sounds great. I'm going to read that. <laughs>
1: yeah. I've read that they tried to apply it in the Netherlands. That's
0: and, right, uh, that, Amsterdam.
1: Yeah. Amsterdam yeah. has taken it up. Yep, and it's really interesting.
0: Brilliant. Great recommendation. Yeah. Uh, great. Um, maybe ping a link to that one out on Twitter or something. Jatinda, did you want to go next with yours?
1: Uh, yeah. So my recommendation this week is a TV series that I came across called Trump Takes on the World. Ah. <laughs> so. Awesome. You can probably yeah. You can probably guess what it's going to be like, but uh, basically it's a little docu series. I think there's about three episodes in total. Uh, only two have been released so far uh, on BBC, around Trump and his foreign policy and how he behaved with some of the international partners for america and it's it's quite insightful in terms of it shows you what it was actually like but do not be surprised like you, <laughs> you're literally going to what you thought of trump will come true via video footage when watching this so it's quite entertaining it's a bit cringe worthy as well in places but i found it a, a really funny uh, amusing and also disappointing as well into that's what he's actually like as a person
0: yeah, uh, it, I guess we should probably wrap into this, The Trump Show as well, maybe, um, because uh. for me, they're basically in the same category. So, um, yeah, that was almost like the the previous season, it felt like to me, because I've been watching this as well, um, which is an, another excellent series, BBC Two, I think that was, um, The yeah. Trump Show. So I'd, I'd probably package those in together, actually, and say, if you're going to watch it, just watch the whole lot, watch The Trump Show and Trump Takes on the World. But Yeah. Brilliant. So my recommendation this week is Tron Legacy. So I was reminded of this by Fortnite, of all things. I don't play Fortnite, but um, they recently did a a Tron skins pack, which is bizarre because the last piece of media that was related to it came out 10 or 11 years ago. But that made me go back and revisit the movie and the soundtrack, which I'll come on to in just a moment. So the movie is it's a 2010 film. Um, Got Jeff Bridges, Olivia Wilde, uh, Garrett Hutland, a few others in it. Absolutely extraordinary looking film absolutely incredible i mean i'm pretty obsessed with neon aesthetic anyway but it just it looks remarkable made still holds up today uh, apart from some particular special effects around de-aging jeff bridges um plot's not great <laughs> but i would encourage everybody to to definitely give it a watch because it's just an incredible sight you know for uh, incredible feast for the for the ears and the eyes just an amazing looking film but the main part of my recommendation isn't about the the film itself it's about the soundtrack so the soundtrack to the film i think is is one of the most, if not the most amazing soundtrack I've ever heard for a film. It was um, Daft Punk were, were asked to come in and do it, and they did the whole thing end to end as a, a almost like a Daft Punk album in and of itself, but one without any lyrical tracks. And it's absolutely incredible. It's brilliant music to work to because it does that whole thing that classical music does, where it kind of puts your brain onto alpha waves so that you're more able to focus and work and learn. But I realised that even ten years after the film came out, I'm still listening to the soundtrack while I'm working, probably at least three or four times a month. Um, so if you've never listened to it, go and listen to the Tron Legacy soundtrack. They recently re-released, I think for the 10th anniversary of it, a, a new version of it with a few extra tracks on the end, I think. But yeah, absolutely amazing. Amazing, amazing piece of music. It's up there for me with Jurassic Park and uh, Indiana Jones and Star Wars and all the sort of amazing John Williams. Queen.
2: Surely Queen and Flash Gordon. <laughs> or Highlander,
0: in fact. Who wants to live forever? But um... oh, oh, yeah,
2: yeah. And that's Flash Gordon, not Flesh Gordon, by the way. Oh, oh don't, no, don't, please, don't no, no,
0: no, 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 no. Don't Google that. You're banned from putting a link to that on Twitter. Tw- Twitter? I'm just Twitter. saying,
2: just uh, don't make a spelling mistake.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, let's not go anywhere near that. Yeah I mean obviously there have been some great soundtracks through the years but for me this one is absolutely up there so if you don't watch the movie which you should once just to see how incredible it looks you should definitely listen to the soundtrack. Brilliant. I think chaps that's it I think that's the show so thank you very much once again for today great chat maybe something we should consider coming back to because I think there are a few threads we didn't tug on in, in that debate but uh, thanks very much to Tinder for evangelising it and um, if you want to get in touch with the show you can do uh, we're available on ddkpod at ddklimited.com that's ddkpod at ddklimited.com that's with limited spelled out in full uh, if you want to get hold of us on twitter we are at ddk limited at ddk limited uh, if you want to find us on linkedin we are dalton day candola so it uh, just remains for me to say thank you very much to both of you guys thanks to all the listeners out there we'll see you again in a couple of weeks thanks a lot
1: thank you see ya.